Welcome, Ali Hupa. Switch to English straight away. Very welcome to you. Tony Ausler is here. Welcome to you. For, thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> Tony uh, has been here for uh, a week now, given very, very generously of his time. My name is uh, Richard Julen. I am uh, deputy director here. And I've worked on this exhibition together with my colleague Tessa Brown, who's standing over there. Uh, and of course, most prominently together with you, Tony. Um, the starting point for the exhibition, Mirror, as it's uh, pronounced, is the fact that we worked together in 2002, uh, 14 years ago, here at Magazine 3, making an exhibition that was called Station. And uh, some of you may have seen that uh, exhibition. Um, Tessa and I have recently been uh, looking at these groups of works in the collection of Magazine 3 to see how they can be revisited and talk to the artists about what they're doing at present. Uh, another moment that many of you uh, saw of this was uh, with eyelashes that we did on Nybroplan with Katarina Grosse together with an exhibition here. And uh, this time we uh, got in contact again. I mean, we've been in contact through the years, but looking into what you're doing now, the facial recognition works. Yeah. And uh, in that process, actually, when we were in your studio, uh, we started seeing the, the old dolls. It's very surprisingly that you actually had some of those there because they're spread throughout the world in museums and collections. But do you then very generously agreed to bring a few of those at first, and in the end, quite a whole bunch. So we have a whole family of these dolls in here. Yeah. So in this exhibition, we're uh, looking at Station from 2002. The works are here. Uh, the latest works of Tony, the doll series, and then also another time, we're going way back to 1979 when you started out, and we have a few of uh, the single-channel video works that are being shown in the exhibition. Yeah. So a couple of different time periods. Uh, you will all be able to see this in a moment. The exhibition opens at 6 o'clock, as you all know. And there is... I actually didn't... I forgot to bring one in my pocket, but I was going to hold up the folder that we have published. You can read about all of these works in the folder. So we're actually not going to talk about these works during this talk. But um, before I briefly tell you what we will talk about, uh, there are very few practical notes. Uh, we're going to be talking in about 40 minutes, Tony and I. And uh, when that is over, I would ask you, you're quite a large group actually, to just stand up and walk straight into the exhibition. Uh, that would help us a lot because we know that uh, a very large number of people are coming tonight and we need to prepare this room for six o'clock so everyone can follow you. There is a beautiful show to see and uh, on the back side of uh, Magazine 3 there are food trucks, drinks and, uh, and Tony. <laughs> um, I'll be eating over there. <coughs> exactly. So, uh, we discussed, we've been actually going through, we've talked about the exhibition in here several times now with the press and with uh, other people. And we thought for this evening, um, it would be nice to focus on three different things. One is uh, your beginnings, uh, where, where you started. 
and then to look a little bit into different collaborations because you have been involved with a lot of different people throughout the years and invited a lot of artists, supported a lot of artists and <coughs> worked together with them. And then finally, we'll also look into the, uh, your, your, your vast archive and what is happening with that. Excellent. Yeah. I like the structure. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how it goes with the structure and timing. Yeah. But uh, Don't look at that picture. Well, it's hard not to. Uh, guess who's Tony? But uh, so, starting out, this is uh, around 1976, perhaps? Yeah. Six or seven, and um, this is a band that, this is our promotional shot for the Poetics, which was a kind of experimental band. Um, I guess you could call it a punk band, but if you were going to categorize the music, but it was a kind of ever-shifting band um, changed by the month, really, and the cast of characters. Um, through the band you have on the far side uh, left. The left is uh let me see which is the left for you guys it's actually the yeah, exact same the right uh is john miller and then myself and then mike kelly and then a guy by the name of bill stowball and um I, don't know. I can't. Forget. I can't remember his name, but uh, the, 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 the last guy, a bass player. Yeah, I showed you this image yesterday. Or, and you said he was yeah. weird, at least. No, he was a good, good man. But sorry, you know how that happens in like bands. It. People just they're in it and then they're out, and you don't know exactly who they were. But um, anyway, Mike, Mike, and myself were the founders of the band, and. Um, the idea, we were kind of preoccupied with uh, this notion of crossover, I guess, at the time. It's a term. Does that term make any sense to anybody today? For sure. Yeah. yeah. Between like disciplines. My, uh, yeah. Between, between disciplines and also kind of inside the art world and the possibility of outside the art world. Like there was um, this notion that, you know, the white cube maybe wasn't the right spot to make art and maybe not the right way to make art and maybe other mediums could be brought into it, uh, music, performance, video, things like that. So um, the band was a kind of experimentation uh, of that and we started out doing like dance pieces and radio projects and... Um, soundtracks uh, for videos and things like that. And then, of course, there was just a lot of rock and roll, but, um, you know, we were very opinionated, as 20-year-olds tend to be, about music. And uh, also it being, you know, the, the uh, mid-'70s, it turns out that that was really the time when punk rock was taking a hold, and that's really what we were kind of interested in uh, with the music, although we did a lot of different things. But the notion of crossover um, hit us pretty hard because Mike and I wrote, um, you know, for example, comedy sketches, things like that. And um, as I mentioned, uh, we did kind of almost like dance pieces 
And at the same time, of course, Mike was developing what would be the legendary performances, uh, the, like the core activities of Mike Kelly. And I was also starting to work with a video camera and starting to do my first videotapes at the same time, which you'll see one or two are in here. So it was a really interesting kind of experimental project. Not that much documentation exists. I found, yeah. Uh, found very, very few images of this, actually. Yeah. Although, what happened was, um, in the um, 1997, some 20 years after the beginning of the band, we were invited by Catherine David to be part of Documenta, which was a great honor. And she had this kind of elliptical time sketch figured out about connecting uh, spaces and times. And um, Mike and I came up with the idea to kind of go back through. I was the kind of scribe of the poetics, so I kept all the notebooks with all the, the lyrics for the songs and sketches for harebrained ideas and, and fantastical things that we would never be able to build um, at the time. And so there was a lot of unfinished work from the project. So we picked it up 20 years later and started to develop, uh, you know, we had all the sketches, you know, for, for different parts of it. And at Documenta X. Yeah, at Documenta X. And so we built a very elaborate uh, kind of snowballing project where we kind of built out, you know, Mike on the West Coast and me in New York. We both built our different parts of the Poetics project and then we brought them together in Castle, Germany and then kind of toured it around and kept adding things to it and shooting new things. And uh, we've remastered a lot of the soundtracks and made a new album and like that. So it was a project we kept working on. I'm going to uh, bring you back to uh, the, the, the starting. Well, it doesn't have to be John, but I just brought him up because you went to Cal Arts. Yeah. Uh, How did you end up in California? Uh, totally by mistake. I'd like to say that I had something to do with it, but I was a complete idiot at the time, and I happened to be going to a community college in upstate New York. And I, luckily, it was close enough to Manhattan where there are a lot of very interesting professors and a guy by the name of Cora Rafos, who's a Nordic guy from, uh, from uh, um, Oslo, and um, Norwegian who, who uh, was my professor there. And he knew a lot of people who were at CalArts and was a very sophisticated painter himself and uh, still is a great artist and friend. And... Uh, one thing led to another, and he was like, you got to go to California and study at CalArts. And I was like, no, I want to go to Rhode Island School of Design, and that's the hip place to go. You know, I had no idea what either school was or even why I had that opinion. You know, it was like a received opinion that, you know, kids are like, <clears throat> I like those sneakers, you know, they're the good sneakers. So I have to have those. I mean, it was really on that level. Like I had <laughs> no idea what I was doing, you know. I was learning to, teaching myself to paint like photorealistic paintings and I had some theory that I had to like 
learn all the different ways of painting, you know, starting from cave painting to, f- f- you know, like ridiculous stuff that Not just, the, you know, small town guy that I was. And so he was like, no, you got to go there. And one thing led to another. I got rejected from RISD. You know, they said you have to draw a shoe. And uh, so there's kind of a shoe theme here. So I was like, I drew this thing. And they're like, you draw it for two hours. And of course, I drew it for like three days. Sent this thing that couldn't possibly have been done in two hours, you know, and right. get rejected. But that's the, you know, the way art school was the test. The draw it's kind shoe? of freaky, like that you could draw a shoe. It was almost like, yeah. Was that the test to get to yeah, yeah, yeah. draw a shoe? Yeah, yeah, draw a shoe. All right. So I was like completely crestfallen, and you know, Cora said to me, he goes, oh, "Look, man, it might be not be too late. I mean, this is the '70s, so." You know, this couldn't happen today. It was like applications were already done, you know. Express mail had just begun. So I, like, sent a bunch of slides to CalArts and ended up going there. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be in California at all because it was like everybody I knew went there was like stoner with long hair and had a van, you know. And I was like, no, that's not me. (laughs) I can't do that. But when I got there, it was this kind of uh, almost like a sensory deprivation chamber or something. You know, it was like this very austere architecture near a big highway. And I thought it was going to be like near the beach with surfers and such, you know, and palm trees. But it was like kind of in the desert. And um, But there was this cast of characters there who absolutely fantastic, uh, none of whom I knew except for uh, one or two uh, interesting filmmakers that I knew of through Robert Breer, who happened to be living in my hometown. Oh, he was a teacher there? Awesome. No, but he I knew him. I was uh, friends with some of his daughters. And oh, okay. So oh, he, he said, hey, you think you're an artist, right? And I was like, yeah, I think so. He's like, oh, come into my studio. Of course, I didn't know who Robert Breer was at the time, what a wonderful artist he was. So it was, you know, what I'm saying is that my uh, complete life was based on, like, happenstance and random interactions with people in retrospect. So I met Breer, and he showed me, like, Brackage and, and uh, you know, various... There was a couple of uh, guys... Experimental filmmakers in yeah, the United States, um, yeah. Exactly, in his own work, and also um, a few other guys who were at CalArts at the time. Um, so John Baldessari was one of, of your teachers? Yeah, I immediately was drawn to uh, John, the uh, wonderful conceptual photographer and performance artist, video maker. And he and I got along quite well, you know, and he was kind of like the teacher anti-teacher, you know, he'd say very little, but it seemed to be just the perfect thing, you know, and he had me completely figured out, you know, um, but he was kind of prescient in a way. He encouraged me to do uh, video, and I hadn't really thought about it uh, at the time, but he would would always say, like, why don't you try to do that with a, a hologram, you know, and I was like, well, Jesus Christ, I'd love to do that, but I don't have like $2,000 to buy a laser and a 
develop the glass plates, John, you know, and you go, it would be good though, wouldn't it? You know, and to like, <laughs> like that. And, and, uh, but one of the things he said to me was like, you, you should uh, um, try projection, you know, because I was shooting these pictures of very tiny birds in the trees and talking to them and throwing rocks at them and stuff and throwing firecrackers at them. And he's like, that, that would be great if they were like, on this massive screen and you just saw these little dots. So he knew projection was in, you know, but that was like many, many years later that I was able to get projectors because... So he spoke about it already then in school? Yeah, we were planning sort of projections and things. <coughs> and um, so he was very forward-thinking guy and he always picked up, you know, uh, the newest technology, you know, at the time. Because I know CalArts was a place where you could get a hold of video cameras, and we've spoken a little bit about this with the, the Sony Porta packs that they were bought quite uh, early on for an art school. Yeah, I mean, right when they came out, and you came there a few years later, but they were still there. You told me. Yeah, yeah, I got them when they were about eight or ten years old. Um, I think that it was '67 or '9 when the first uh, Sony Porta pack came out. And then they were like, after they were kind of, you know, I don't know if people know, but these cameras at the time, they had what was called a Viticon tube, and you had to be quite careful with them. They were absolutely gorgeous in the way they made images because they had this kind of ghosty quality. They couldn't actually lock on to a picture, you know, it was just kind of this approximation. So you'll see this kind of trails behind, you know, when you'd move the camera. I know. But the problem was if you pointed it at any kind of a light source, it would burn into the retina and stay there just oh, like the if, camera, right? Yeah, just like if you stared at the sun, you could burn a hole in your eye. The exact same thing happened with these cameras. So they were almost alive, you know, and they were like really, it was very kind of stressful to use it because even if you got a reflection of a light off a bottle, it could destroy the camera. But of course the cameras already had what was known as burns in them. So you had to kind of like <laughs> arrange it into the frame. There'd be these black spots on the camera and you'd have to just like make sure that there was something black in the picture. Otherwise you'd have like Is that what these are? Because this, is this one of the pieces, sh the, the black and white image here? Absolutely, yeah. Is that shot at CalArts? The crazy head, yeah. Um, that That's one of the pieces we're actually showing. That's the earliest piece we're showing in the show here from yeah. 1979. Mm -hmm. how, how, how did you start out this way? I mean, how did it, th this theatricality that you've had from, from very early on and this playfulness that you can still see? I mean, the, the works that you will all see when you walk in here, there's, it's still there, this uh, theatricality in the sense also that there's always still makeup in the different pieces and... Uh, yeah. You know. kind of paint the paint never really went away I guess because mm. I always thought of myself as a kind of TV generation you know and that uh, growing up watching TV I I think you know an artist has to connect to the time in which they live and you know if the vernacular if the image that the, the, the current you know, image that people are looking at, whether it's a, a phone or a TV screen or whatever, um, that kind of dominant form 
um, in some way has to be reflected in, in one's activity or at least choose not to or whatever, exclude it. And for me, growing up watching TV, I was never really satisfied with the painting, you know, uh, so I'd work on a painting and then I didn't quite feel like it was doing what I wanted to do. So then I started projecting on, I mean, uh, shoot, you know, shooting the the painting as I was painting it and looking on the TV and sort of painting while I was looking at the TV and then thinking about the space and then started building uh, very quick sort of shorthand props that would be used to uh, kind of approximate <clears throat> activities. It's different always sets, interested. sets of different kinds. Sets, yeah. So they were kind of these moving paintings, but then, you know, at the same time, I was looking at uh, some of the early, uh, <clears throat> like Nosferatu and, and um, some of the, even before that, some of the early, early... Um, um, like George Melier's films and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I liked this kind of Brechtian effect where you're always kind of reminded of what you're watching as you're watching it, that it's, there's, you kind of flip back and forth with the engagement. And, you know, inherent in, in, in media in general is a kind of hypnotic state which can easily be uh, shifted in or out of <clears throat> with the viewer. So I was kind of playing with that, you know, people's expectations of what a character would be, what an actor would be, you know, which I'm still playing around with that today with the kind of feature film, but with kind of language puppet actors and things like that. So because there's a um, willing suspension of disbelief, which occurs when people just kind of agree to look at the screen or this screen and then what happens there uh, can be kind of played with and short-circuited. So I was always kind of pushing things in front of the screen, but then kind of taking them out for installations at, at the same time. So there was this kind of feeling of turning the image inside out at any given moment. <clears throat> I'm going to move on to, to collaborations. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are... Uh, a lot. These are just examples on the screen, and we, we will not have time to talk through all of these, but m maybe, I don't know if you want to pick and choose, actually, because we didn't... Constance, she's in uh, several of the pieces in here, notably yeah. on the, 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 the piece that is on the poster here, Caricature, that's her. She's the she's person yeah. you've uh, worked with for a very long time. Also, Tony Conrad is in the exhibition in one of the... Uh, um, Professor Conrad, uh, yeah. Yeah, he's in one of the puppets. Also made the music for the influence machine that I will briefly mention toward mm -hmm. the end that we'll restage. If you were to pick one person here to uh, to just talk about a little bit, um, probably a difficult task, but... Well, I think I could pick three. No, I don't I'm, know. <laughs> I, I, will, I will bring up some music uh, references after that to talk to okay. you about as well. Um, yeah, I could we can go back if there's time. Briefly talk about, um, you know, uh, Constance, I guess. Uh, or we could talk about my bank robber friend. Yeah, Joe he Gibbons. is interesting, yeah. So you can't resist him, can Joe you? Joe Gibbons. No, no one can resist him. Uh, but... But I'll talk about Constance, All and right. then maybe if we have time, you know, you can go, go on the internet and read about Joe Gibbons later. Um, 
he's out of jail now, but he's going back in. Mm. He was, uh, there he is, to the left of Conrad. But This is a film you made together, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Let's jump to Constance. But Constance, um, it's nice to talk about her right now because she's, uh, you know, as you've probably seen in my work, I kind of veer into language and image and language and kind of balance between the two. And she had a great effect on me. I saw her work when I was teaching at Minneapolis College of Art and Design and I think in 82 or something like that. And <clears throat> she's a writer, performer, sound artist, and um, jack of all trades, I guess, for lack of a better word. And I saw her do these kind of performances of these very dense texts, which rapidly changed direction and could only be compared to like maybe channel surfing or uh, web surfing or something. And I thought it was absolutely stunning to hear uh, the gymnastics of this um, language. And it seemed to be informed by uh, media culture in one way or another. Um, but also the oral presentation, she would, she would kind of memorize these texts and, and deliver them quite rapidly. And I saw her do this in, in Minneapolis and I thought, oh, this is fantastic. I got to figure this out because it was almost like she was able to hypnotize the audience. And I think she actually in some ways can do that. But um, it's also nice to speak about her because her operas on now in town here. So people who want to know more about Constance can see Satagraha, which is a collaboration of, with Philip Glass that she did over at the uh, opera and um, about uh, <coughs> peaceful uh, resistance, nonviolent activity, Mahatma Gandhi and, um, and Martin Luther King and so forth and thought about that. But we've got a uh, piece in here at one of our collaborations uh, called Joyride TM, which is um, a kind of contemplation on theme parks in general and synthetic spaces. And we also did um, quite a lot of performance pieces where um, she would recite text along with images. And so we'd kind of switching between the different lobes of the mind Mm. Um, which I recently read somewhere that actually you can't look and read at the same time, you know, that it's actually impossible. So your brain is really always switching. Thing. And I thought that was great. That would explain why some people really hate image text photography and things like that, that it's actually kind of messing with, with, with people's synapses. But there is some kind of uh, bridge between the two and I've been trying to play with that for many years, and she's a quite an inspiration in that. Uh, she's been one of the first dolls that I made. Uh, she performed in, and of course, Caricature, which is a big, big part of uh, Station, and was produced here in Stockholm, right out where the food is going to be carved there, yeah. and uh, generated for our project here in 2002. And it was the kind of launching pad for a whole series of works, these kind of bubble pieces I did. Um, but so she's a, 
you know, wonderful collaborator performance. I can't really say enough about her, but but you will. But I but I'm going to move on. Yeah, yeah, you, you have, have to stop. move on, Richard. <laughs> I, we kind of have to. Uh, I wanted okay. to bring up. Uh, perhaps specifically uh, Kim Gordon but Sonic Youth and just the fact that you've been very close to music you started yeah. out with a band yeah. and you've worked with several musicians I'm going to bring up Sonic Youth and then another person sure. in a moment this is a, a still from a Tunic song for Karen which is kind of about uh, Karen Carpenter and uh, and her battle with uh pop culture and bulimia and so forth and um, her persona and sung and originated by Kim so it's one of the few rock videos I've made but yeah I've always had a kind of ongoing relationship with uh, music and rock and performance although after the poetics I sort of went into the studio and never really wanted to do the live performance myself but um, <clears throat> and funny at that time I met Kim Gordon before she was in a band. Um, and so I was very critical of uh, the whole format of the proscenium stage and the rock band. I thought it was quite uh, archaic and so forth. But um, so we always talked about the kind of theory around performance and, uh, and the way that it kind of operated in, in, in culture, what it meant to be in a band, what the whole kind of idol worship of rock and roll was about and so forth and of course we made a little known video called uh, Making the Nature Scene <clears throat> which had to do with kind of deconstructing the rock uh, clubs in New York mm -hmm. danceateria in general and um, and through her eye you know so I kind of produced the, vi the video for that <clears throat> and that can be, you know, seen around. And then there's a piece in the show with <clears throat> Kim Gordon as well here, which is, I yeah. think is amazing. I really love it. The song itself, it's really... Yeah, so uh, Kim, you know, she was one of the first dummies that I made too. I kind of asked her to be a, a, a singing dummy. Mm. But at the same time, I produced this so short clip which is in the exhibition here, which is just a, really, it's a portrait of her, you know, that um, I didn't realize it at the time, but it's a perfect kind of riot girl or post-riot girl. I don't even know what it is, but it's just a wonderful portrait of her. Um, and she's she'd been in a lot of pieces of mine through the years, and we did. Um, also, you're showing Perfect Partner here, yeah. which was um, a kind of, fusion of performance, narrative film, and uh, a layered video, um, which was a, an incredible piece that toured all around. I'm going to jump also to uh, David Bowie. We, I think a, a video that got a lot of visibility and was yeah. very, very beautiful. I mean, the song is amazing. Uh, with your... Could you talk a little bit about the sure. relationship um, with... This David, artist. you know, I, I met David, um, I, he was always a hero of mine since I was a kid. And um, one thing led to another, um, and I was in a group exhibition that he was in based on fashion mm -hmm. by, I think, Germano Chalant curated it, 
and I saw that he was in it, you know, and I thought, oh, I gotta be in it. If David's in it, you know, I'm in. But I couldn't go. I sent my assistant and I said, if you see the man around, you know, just tell him, like, I love him, you know, this is it. He's it for me. So, like, you know, this is before cell phones to Europe or anything like that. It's like back in the fax era. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another, and I get this message one day, you know, hello, it's uh-huh. David Bowie here. You know, my answering machine, and I was like, ah, this is just too much. You know, I was playing it back for all my relatives. And, uh, <laughs> it's like, because I may up. never have get any closer to the guy than this message. Mm. But uh, so one thing led to another, and I was living in this real hovel on Ludlow Street. I mean, I loved it, but it, I mean, it was like basically a storage space right across the street from Max Fish with rats in the ceiling. And, you know, it was <clears throat> pretty hardcore with junkies living in the basement. And, uh, and I mean, really junkies living in the basement and heroin dealers on the street. It was like right at the end of the bad era, you know. So over comes David Bowie to see some of my dolls and dummies. And I think he just couldn't believe anybody lived there, you know. He's <laughs> <laughs> like hanging out looking at the dolls and dummies and seeing how they worked. And uh, one thing led to another. And I, um, you know, uh, he invited me to do the kind of stage set for his uh, 50th birthday party at Madison Square Garden, and which was just the most incredibly exciting uh, fan activity that could ever take place. And you can see any of that probably on YouTube. And... That's where uh, Sonic Youth are playing I'm um, Afraid of Americans. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, so good. Great. And uh, so that began a couple of collaborations. You know, I, I said, well, I'll do that. You know, you can use my kind of artwork in the stage, but just, you know, trade me for like one or two performances, you know, come over to the studio and let me write something for you and we'll shoot it. So in that way, I got to, shoot a few wonderful pieces with him and he he loved it so um <clears throat> then time went by um things got very quiet i guess he had a massive heart attack and <clears throat> right in the middle of a tour and he kind of went very quiet no one knew what was going on and um <clears throat> strangest thing happened you know like people were like what about Dave you know what's happening with David rumors of his sickness or his demise and so I had a dream I I almost didn't tell the story but I'll tell it here so I had a dream uh one night that David came over and me and my uh wife at the time Jacqueline Humphreys you know answered the door and he says I've got my new album here I want to play it for you We're like, well, come in, you know, like, and I'm listening to it. It's like, that's fantastic, fantastic, fantastic. Oh, that song sucks. It sounds too much like scary monsters, you know, like, why is he repeating himself, you know? But it was this weird dream Mm. where I heard it. And that week, he called me up and he's like, I want you to come over. You're making this up. No, it's the truth. I swear to God, it's the truth. So he called me up. I want you to come over listened to the new album, came over to the studio, <laughs> played the new album like the same week. But I, it's such a weird story. I can tell it now 
but um, I couldn't even tell it at the time because I told him and I think he was going to walk out the door and like, he was like, I'm done with you, man. Forget it. You know? like, I said, David, I don't think about you all the time. I don't dream about you all the time. But uh, anyway, it was a weird, it was a prophetic dream. It did happen. And <clears throat> then it was even kind of better because... Oh, I should mention that when he came over before, he said, you want to listen to my new album? He said, yeah, here, you have to sign this. And I'm like, okay, I'll sign it. I hope that it's not, you know, my first child or something that you're taking away. But it was a, uh, uh, <clears throat> one of these kind of privacy agreements. So I couldn't really say anything that we talked about. And his plan, which you may or may not know, was like he hadn't put an album out for 10 years. And he wanted to have secretly, no leaks, no nothing, just drop it on the uh, internet on his birthday, the first single at midnight, you know. And then he said, and you'll make the video for it. We'll drop that video. And I was like, uh, I hope it's not a big budget video, David, because I don't know if I can do that, you know, like. Mm. Uh, and, and he's like, no, no, we're just going to shoot it in your studio, you know, because he liked the hovel effect in my studio. Like That's the more so beautiful. It's fucked up, the better. Yeah. And, um, it's, this is, it's actually what your studio looks like. Yeah, exactly. And we arranged a few things for symbolic relevance, you know, right. knowing that people would read into it endlessly. Like, what does that mean? Mm. What does that mean? So we put a few things around and left it at that. But um, beautiful story. <clears throat> I'm going to jump to the third thing we wanted to talk about: your archive. Excellent. Unless there's something you want to add about music. Um. Uh, no, it's just the ever. You know, I think throughout this work, even here, when you walk in with the facial recognition pieces and so forth, there's a kind of soundtrack that. Um, <clears throat> randomly kind of creates itself. And as you move around, um, you construct it in your head. So it's kind of, music is always something I think about, whether it's actual instruments making a song or not, which I still do occasionally. But um, <clears throat> it's always there. Sound yeah. and noise also, yeah. I guess. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Um, even in... I'm going to do a segue here. Even in the film called Imponderable, yeah. I wrote a song for Frankenstein's monster to sing. Uh, and, and the soundtrack uh, on there is wonderful commission that we worked on with um, Jim Thurwell, known as Fetus. I don't know if people know who he is. Some people do, I'm sure. Some people know, yeah. Um, anyway... If we backtrack, these are, you've been, when did it start, this collecting of, of uh, this big collection of yours? Is it around the time of uh, the influence machine or does it yeah. go even further back? Well, because this, this, what you're seeing here on does. the screen is, is, is a very impressive and super interesting book with a part of your collection that was put out last summer. Right. And uh, what, what is this collection? Well, I'm going to digress just a little bit about uh, the influence machine and mentioned that we're going to in October 20th and 21st, I think it is. Uh, it, 
television uh, and also the Phantasmagoria. So you have John Logie Baird and, um, and Philo T. Farnsworth. And um, you probably don't know who any of those people are. See, I'm trying. I'm trying to <laughs> get Adventures of the there. television. And, um, and, and also Gaspar Robertson, who did the Phantasmagoria, which sort of inspired the way that that piece looked. But also more uh, current people like uh, Constantine Rudive, who was a Nordic guy who used to listen to radio waves and hear voices in it. And... Um, <clears throat> So, and, and a place called Spiricom, which was uh, a TV station that was set up to actually communicate with the dead. And um, <clears throat> so they believed that through this, some kind of feedback in their TV station, they were able to receive spirit information. So you see a theme here. I was using this kind of alternative view of technology as a kind of oracle, um, almost outsider approach, uh, irrational use of a technologically rational um, tool uh, to talk to the dead. Not that I particularly want to talk to the dead, but what I would like to do is for people to use tools uh, outside of the corporate uh, way that technology is presented. So I thought there's always this magic moment um, when a new technology arises, whether it's like uh, s possessed hard drives or, um, <clears throat> or um, spirit photography that, that people in, don't know how to use the technology in a wonderful way, which is analogous to art production. So around that time, I was collecting a lot of ephemera related to this history and kind of just throwing it in my uh, closet, you know. So I would find like a theosophy book in a bookstore in um, somewhere in Scandinavia, the first edition, and I would just put that in my book, in my closet. Or I'd go online and hear about ectoplasm, for example, which, uh, <clears throat> which I would then buy. Like that's a picture of ectoplasm. Um, and if you look carefully, you see that it's illuminated by a black light. So it's kind of glowing. You get that effect in there. To some of you, it might look like cheesecloth. Does it look like cheesecloth? To others, it may look like ectoplasm. Do you know what ectoplasm is? It's you know, Tony, after your last show here, I was so inspired by our discussions. Then I made a show here called Spiritus, and oh, there yeah. was actually ectoplasm images. Right. I don't know if any of you saw that show, but so yes, the everyone in Stockholm knows what ectoplasm is. They do. They saw okay. the show. So there you go. Um, <clears throat> I have some, and here's some coming out of a uh, one of my favorite Irish psychics. This is a photograph of. Um, <clears throat> And then here's um, a pareidolia image from Switzerland somewhere, I'm not sure where. And here's a hypnotism image from Brazil, I believe. Uh, and then here's a poster of, uh, I grew up with this poster. My uh, grandfather was a magician and a writer. And this was a kind of a stock image. He wasn't a famous magician. He became a famous writer, but you could just, anybody could buy this and then you'd pay the guy to stamp your name on it. And then you'd put where the 
show was going to be. So I've actually seen this with other people's names on it, you know, it's good. But I grew up with it. And, you know, let me tell you, when you're like three looking at this, freaked me out. Man. <laughs> Permanently burned my brain, I'm sure. But um, <clears throat> I think we should round off just uh, saying that uh, the whole art, I mean, it's a, it's a vast project, uh, an amazing yeah. book. And it was turned into uh, an exhibition in uh, France and in Switzerland so far. Yeah, um, and, the, and the MoMA and right the, now. Yeah, oh, the whole show also together with the, is that MoMA? Uh, the, the the ephemera is at Bard College. That's right. <clears throat> and the, what had the way it went was first we made a book, and then um, we weren't going to show the actual objects, so that. Um, Beatrix Roof and um, Tom Eccles, the curators of the Luma Foundation, some of the curators of Luma Foundation, kind of focused on this project. And Maya Hoffman and the Luma Foundation funded the, the photography of the collection and the book. And then Tom and, and uh, Beatrix said, you know, well, you got to react to this archive. And I was like, I don't know how to react to this 3,000 images, you know. And, like, I've been reacting to it for years, and they were like, well, think about it, you know. Mm. And one of the core parts of the archive, it's not that many images, but uh, one of the stories um, in it we pulled out involving um, Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, uh, Harry Houdini, Fulton Hoursler, my grandfather, uh, and Marjorie Crandon, uh, who's the psychic depicted in the center of the uh, image there with a teleplasmic hand emanating from her crotch during a seance. And those characters kind of interact in a film that I made um, based on, it's actually as accurate as I could possibly be because it's, it's one of the strangest stories you'll ever hear. I mean, with the appearance of fairies and um, and teleplasmic hands and ectoplasm and and <clears throat> and automatic uh, uh, writing and so forth. So I tried to kind of stick to the actual facts of the of the case of the story because uh, all these characters interacted uh, historically. Conan Doyle knew Houdini, and my grandfather knew both of them and was friends with both of them. And, Con and uh, Marjorie Crandon was uh, a psychic who was a, a kind of psychical researcher, um, kind of proto-feminist, in my mind, proto-surrealist, um, interacted with them in a, in a very special way. Um, what happened was, um, and then I'll wind it up, is that uh, Scientific American magazine in, in the 20s had a contest where um, they invited anybody who could demonstrate telekinesis in a laboratory setting uh, would win a certain amount of money. And so it was meant to be a scientific uh, exploration with judges in a, in a scientific setting. And Marjorie Crandon, who was uh, kind of the top psychic at that time, um, volunteered to do it. 
and Harry Houdini and a couple of other wonderful characters uh, were on the um, judging committee. And so that's the kind of climax of the film. So I kind of take all their interactions and uh, wove it together into a story that has a kind of, you know, I'm interested in history, as I mentioned with, you know, the project we did with um, um, the Influence Machine, you know, so these historic characters, so that have some relationship to reality. Mm. Uh, but in this, in this particular film, in this project, uh, you know, believability is at issue with almost everything. And that's the fun of it, you know, the, to find the truth or the falsehood or position ourselves uh, into uh, various belief systems. Uh, one of the things, and I'll, I'll end there, I guess, is that <clears throat> looking at this uh, collection of images, I started to think, well, a lot of my work is about belief systems and the suspension of disbelief and so forth. But um, now in America, <clears throat> statistically, and this is interesting with Trump uh, being there, that you know we have probably I think 60% of the population believes in um, in mind reading. Um, probably 50% of the population believes in UFOs. Uh, one third of the population does not believe in um, evolution. And so when you think about, you know, that we live in a rational era, you know, one of the things that I wanted to bring up with this book is that if you kind of like peel the surface back and ask people what they really believe, we're living in a whole different landscape than, than one might imagine. Perfect last words. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. Thanks, man. Excellent.